Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. On this broadcast, I am happy to introduce Dr. Nicole Miller, Professor in Department of Urology and Fellowship Director for Endourology and Laparoscopic Surgery at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Miller, welcome and thank you very much for participating. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Today we're going to discuss the HOLEP procedure, the homeum laser nucleation of the prostate. Dr. Miller is a nationally and internationally renowned expert in the area, not only in the technique, but also the literature and a lot of the science and technology that go behind it. Uh, and um, I, I guess the first, what we can start off with, uh, Nicole, is where do you see the, the current status? What is the current kind of, how does it fit in and what do we, where do we fit this into our practice nationally and internationally? Yes, you know, the good news for Holop is that the number of cases and the number of surgeons performing it is certainly uh, increasing over time. The bad news is that still the number of cases as it stands per number of BPH cases being done, uh, particularly in the United States, is still small. So in 2015, we looked at this at our group um, have published that information. It was only about 4% of all BPH cases then. Um, in 2019, it's up to 7%. But if you look at the available data, there are 14 randomized controlled trials that show the superiority of this technique. And so for it to be only 7% of all cases done, that's still rather disappointing uh, in my mind. Now, when we look sort of internationally, there's been greater adoption, particularly in Europe and Asia. And you might ask, well, you know, what, what's the reason for that? Um, I think there's a lot of potential reasons, but one is that the payer systems are really different in those countries. And um, I think the idea of being able to do one procedure that's gonna be very durable um, is attractive, uh, particularly like in a national health service. But also particularly the United Kingdom, they have a training program uh, for residents. And so it's an integral part of the educational process. Uh, so I think those things uh, make it more attractive um, but those of us who do it here in the States, we are, we are desperately trying to, uh, to teach more and more fellows and uh, other, you know, interested parties. So I want to get back to that, uh, the, the teaching part and the competence. I guess if I could just ask a real quick question about your, your previous comment about the numbers. I know that the resume and the Eurolift and, and, and maybe even the, the aquablation, maybe some of these um, newer minimally invasive procedures I probably don't really target the same patient population as Holop as far as prostate size configuration, but do you really feel that those have made some impact on the slowing of the acquisition of the procedure or not? I think anytime there's new technology in BPH, particularly if it can be done outpatient um, and it can be done, you know, without a, a significant learning curve, um, it's going to be a competitor. Uh, for for Holop, uh, you know, there there's definitely a learning curve associated with this. But I think you know it really depends on what you're looking for in terms of outcomes. I mean, there I don't think anyone would argue 
that the durability of Holup far, uh, you know, outperforms that of Resume and some of the minimally invasive surgical therapies. And then what you were getting at is the index patient is potentially a little bit different for these, uh, the minimally invasive treatments versus the, the Holup procedure. Sure. And, and you mentioned the acquisition of skill and the learning curve, et cetera. Realistically, uh, I'm going to just start doing holeups tomorrow. What realistically uh, is a, you know, quote, number of cases to competence? What is that learning curve? And what are some of the barriers to learning the procedure? And what are kind of some of the more difficult steps to maintain? And, and how do we maintain proficiency? And you can even you can even discuss that with national and international pressures and obstacles. Well, to your first question, you know, the to me the learning curve um, has been fairly well established as somewhere between twenty five and fifty cases if you have appropriate mentoring. Um, and the question is really, what does that mean? Appropriate mentoring. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, in the United Kingdom, there's a very uh, robust program uh, that if you are a, a community urologist or uh, even an academic urologist, you can uh, sign on to this program to be formally mentored. Nothing like that quite exists in the United States at this point. Um, and so I, I think that those of us who are really busy and do a lot of the operation, we're so busy operating that a lot of times we've fallen short in the mentoring portion. Um, we certainly are teaching our fellows and so forth, but you know, trying to get more uh, physicians that are in the community to adopt the procedure has been difficult. Um, and I think the, the barriers are that even now, after Holt's been around for a long time, there still really lacks adequate simulators. You know, so having to learn how to do an operation like this in the operating room you know, on patients in a live set surgery setting is pretty stressful, I would say. And I think we've learned from other fields how important, you know, simulation and practice is in surgery. Um, you know, the, uh, the whole issue of barriers to adoption, you know, BPH needs to be a, a big part of your practice if you're going to learn how to do this, because we know that you need to stack cases um, in order to gain proficiency. Um, and so if you do one or two BPH procedures a, a month, that isn't going to be enough to be able to feel confident uh, in doing the, uh, this type of procedure, which is rather demanding. And I think what I've learned more over the years that I don't think I appreciated at the beginning um, was how much variability there is in prostate anatomy, just from not just size, but length and height and, um, you know, whether it's pushing up the bladder neck and um, is there a median lobe? There's just, in each one of those different configurations changes the complexity of the case uh, for sure. And I think, you know, we, we know that the learning curve is best overcome if you initially try to stay with prostates that are probably less than a hundred grams. Um, but if you go out into practice and people know that you do holup, they're going to send you 300 gram prostates. And that's a lot to, uh, to overcome when you're, when you're just learning. Be careful what you ask for, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think a lot of people have questions also about um, some of the technology and maybe some of the technology uh, variabilities that, that exist. Uh, one would be the morselator or, or at least the, the extraction device. And, Maybe you can just touch on, on 
have we seen a, a drastic improvement and, and a considerable improvement to minimize complications with that? And also, uh, the the laser technology is uh, are we maxed out with that, or is there still room for growth? Yes, you know, uh, you ask a very uh, important question. When we have surveyed um, physicians as to what parts of the operation they're most worried about. The morselation, oddly enough, is the one that is, uh, you know, we, that always comes up. I think, op, uh, you know, surgeons are concerned about having a bladder perforation or morselator injury. Um, and yet those events are so incredibly rare. And when you break down the parts of the operation, the morselation is actually the part of the operation that's the easiest to learn and has the shortest of the learning curves. Um, in terms of like what has improved in the technology, uh, you know, the uh, most popular morselator, I would say, uh, is the Richard Wolf morselator because it has a oscillating blade and it's totally smooth on the backside. And so that um, really allows you to come along the base of the uh, bladder without worrying about engaging the bladder with the morselator. So um, I think that's not as much of an, an issue as uh, would be, be of concern. The laser technology is a pretty exciting area. The newer lasers that have pulse modulation have really improved the hemostasis that we have during a uh, whole procedure. Um, and one of the reasons why we would usually bring patients in as an observation stay uh, was because they needed continuous bladder irrigation. Uh, since I switched to Holmium laser with, uh, with the pulse modulation, I send almost everyone home. Uh, so that is a huge, uh, and I'm not the only one, uh, you know, most of the high volume holop surgeons are now have turned this into an outpatient operation. So, and I only see the lasers getting better. And how long roughly do you keep your catheters in just for someone who doesn't really do them or not familiar with them? Do you leave them in for a while? Uh, about 12 hours. Uh, if, they're, if they're a first case or a last case of the day, they, they keep their catheter just overnight. Uh, there are some, um, I know that uh, Dr. Krambeck and Dr. Humphreys are doing some work on trying to get catheters out same day. Um, I uh, have not done that to date, um, but uh, we are moving um, a lot of our cases to an outpatient surgery center now based on the data that we've acquired over the last year, um, showing that this can be an outpatient procedure. And so I think, you know, in that scenario where it's a true outpatient, we may uh, be trying to get some, get some catheters out same day. That's fantastic. That, uh, that really adds uh, such a, a great uh, dimension to BPH therapy. I, I guess on the, again, on the coattails of that comment, you're at a center of excellence. You are a center of excellence, obviously, for this, this procedure. Should this be only performed at centers of excellence, or do you think this can be widely disseminated in the community for uh, just like the TERP, the TERP uh, was for a long time? Yes, I have thought about this question a lot because uh, you know, and, and, and not everyone agrees with me. Um, I don't think it needs to stay at centers of excellence, but I think it's a far cry from being able to be widely disseminated for the reasons that we mentioned that, uh, you know, really if, if you're a community urologist in particular, you know, time is money and um, taking 
a considerable amount of time to focus on one operation um, and to get through a learning curve, it would have to be a large portion of the patient population you're seeing. You would, you, you, sh you would want to be someone who does a lot of EPH to be able to um, want to acquire that skill. And I think one of the things we haven't talked about uh, so far is that you know, our patients are more informed than they have ever been. Um, and so they drive the referrals to some degree. Um, and so I think to some degree, it, the, it will stay at larger centers of excellence because to, you, you are often the draw for a patient to come. So I would say more than 60% of my practice is outside of the state uh, that, I, that I practice in. Um, and I've developed relationships with you know, practices all over the United States who don't do whole of themselves, but um, send patients to me because they feel as if I can provide them with predictable outcome. For some of our listeners who are part of a, a large group, uh, you know, a 20, 30 person urology group, that might be a sweet spot for kind of a non-academic, non-quote center of excellence that might benefit from having maybe one person do, you know, hold up for their large group of 20. They, they already have an internal referral of 20 or 30 urologists that, uh, who, who they can draw from. Yes, and there are examples of those large group practices. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of my job as being fellowship director and someone who gets to train the next holop surgeons is being able to put them in not only academic jobs, but in um, large group practice um, and even in smaller group practices. Uh, the key is that the group itself has to buy in uh, to this being a benefit. Uh, and I think it's hard to, to explain how good an operation this is until you get the opportunity to see the patients back in the office. I mean, anyone who does a lot of whole would be able to tell you that. I've had fellows who have come from other institutions where other things of other BPH procedures have been done and they'll routinely say, your patients are you know, much more satisfied and content uh, than what we have seen with, with, with other operations for BPH. And, you know, that that's really makes, you know, the, our jobs enjoyable then because we feel like we're making a difference. This is a disease you can actually cure with a whole up. You know, I, I've been doing it 14 years at Vanderbilt. I've never operated on a patient again because of prostatic regrowth. And I just can't think of any operation that you could say that about um, from, in terms of BPH. Very good point. That's a very interesting uh, point to think about uh, when, when we want to isolate these to centers of excellence, it'd be good to have these disseminated amongst other urologists. So on closing uh, of this, again, I, I want to thank you for your time, but um, kind of an obvious question, you know, what is the next treatment for, for symptomatic BPH? Is there something that we're not familiar with? I, I, I know that you and Duke Carroll are, are certainly very, very involved in a technological center and a, a, a new technology juggernaut down there in Nashville. What do you foresee something endoscopic or outpatient or minimally invasive, et cetera, that might mimic a whole up or it might take the place of a whole up or it might take the place of existing technologies? You know, we love to say innovate or die. And I honestly think that is true. And urologists are such good 
innovators uh, and adopters of new techniques and uh, I, I don't, I do very few things that I learned in residency. Um, had to teach myself, you know, all new techniques uh, for the better of the patient. Uh, you know, there has certainly been increased interest in uh, robotic platforms across urology. Uh, I don't think BPH will be any different. I mean, essentially the aqua ablation is a robotic platform. Uh, we're incredibly lucky at Vanderbilt to have a very close relationship between the Department of Urology and the Department of Engineering uh, plus what's called the Vanderbilt uh, Institute for Surgery and Engineering, which allows us to collaborate. Um, and in that process, uh, Dr. Harrell and myself, uh, Bob Webster, who's a PhD in engineering, um, have been looking at a transurethral robotic platform uh, for not only BPH surgery, but really for any type of transurethral surgery. Uh, and it allows the use of uh, really two robotic arms that are miniaturized, um, about 2.5 millimeters each. So you can imagine having the ability to have like a basket in one hand or um, you know, a laser in the other hand or, 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 or a retractor, um, a transurethral retractor. Because I think when we think about what makes this procedure difficult is you have to, for holeup in particular, you have to maintain countertraction. You have to get the beak of the scope in there. You have to have the laser pointed in the right direction. If you had two hands and two instruments, you absolutely could do this operation uh, even better than we do it without. But if you can think beyond BPH, you know, maybe we could take the entire prostate out and then suture the bladder back to the urethra. And I mean, that, that's the, the RO one that uh, Dr. Harrell has, and I'm a co-investigator on, that's, that's, that's sort of the next step looking at what, whether we can do robotic suturing. But specific to BPH, it's really just being able to give us a way to deliver, whether it's a new laser energy or, or a different type of um, instrument uh, to the prostate. Uh, I think robotics is unlimited in terms of its uh, opportunity. Fantastic. Dr. Miller, we uh, really appreciate your time and uh, your expertise. Uh, please uh, keep up the good work and um, we uh, hope to see the next body of work coming out of your institution and we wish you well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.